0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us in today's teaching as we continue our study through the book of Revelation. Here is Pastor Greg. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 7. And I've titled this message, uh, The 144,000 Sealed to Evangelize. We are in a world today where there are many without Christ. We have a God that has uh, a love that is hard for us even to grasp of how much he loves all of mankind doesn't want anyone to perish without him and our Lord has gone to every length and will go to every length to save everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord in chapter seven here we're still in the first half of the tribulation period that first three and a half year period As we've already gone through in chapter 6, the first seal has already been opened and the white horse, we'll call it the white horse of deception, whose rider is the Antichrist. He comes forth on the scene conquering to conquer with all deception. And then we have the second seal... That follows the red horse coming forth to take peace from the earth. And he does it through death and he does it through war. The third seal is then opened, and the black horse comes riding out with a pair of scales in his hands. And John hears a voice crying out from the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. And this world is going to experience an unprecedented time of famine and death during this first three and a half years. Then the fourth seal is opened, and a pale or a green horse rides out, bringing widespread death. And we're told that Hades follows with him, and power was given to him over a fourth of the earth, To kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. After these four horsemen are released, we see the fifth seal opened. And John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain or martyred for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Uh, These martyred souls could be Old Testament saints as well as those that maybe will be martyred even for their faith in the beginning of the tribulation period. They're going to be uh, there standing and John sees this vision of them under the altar of God. Four weeks ago we finished Revelation 6 with the opening of the sixth seal. And we read about the, we'll call them cosmic disturbances uh, that are going to come upon this earth. It started out really with the earthquake. You can see this picture that I pulled off of the internet of uh, up there in Alaska. Just what a a fault can do when it disrupts the earth. Pretty incredible. Incredible. But this is going to be an earthquake that's going to be unprecedented. It's going to literally shake the very core of this earth. This will probably be nothing in comparison. The sun, we're told, is going to be blackened like sackcloth of hair. And the moon is going to become like blood. uh, Which could possibly be an eclipse, really, of the sun or the moon and the moon. The moon turning and looking as if it were the color of blood. The stars of heaven, we're told, will fall like a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And we don't know for sure what this will look like, but it's very possible that it could be a meteor shower. It could be something that, uh, uh, something that's coming from God. That God is allowing to come. Upon this earth. And then we're told that the sky. Is going to recede as a scroll when it is rolled up. And it's very possible some have speculated even during this earthquake. Volcanoes. Ash going into the air. But it's very possible that this. Sky receding like a scroll will just be how the light will be blackened out from all of the things that are going to be put, stuff that is going to be put up into the air, into the atmosphere. But what we see as a result of all of this, and really what God is doing in all this, it says that the kings of the earth... The great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man will hide themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and will be crying out for the mountains and the rocks to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. There's going to be a shaking in this earth. It's going to be a time of fear in men's heart. A, a time of pain, anger, despair. It's going to be a time where there, people are going to have no hope. And I think that there's going to be a, a, a time now where there's going to be many people that are not being drawn by the Holy Spirit any longer. They've hardened their hearts so hard that God says, do what you're going to do. God no longer drawing upon many of the hearts of men and women. And then instead of turning in repentance, they're calling for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from his face. You know, chapter 6, verse 17 It really ends with a terrifying question. Look at it. Chapter 6, verse 17. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who will be able to stand? By the middle of the tribulation, what this world has seen so far is the rapture of the church has already happened. It's hard for us to get get it into our minds and our heads. What even that event will be. What it will be like. What it will do in this world. It's going to be a major upset to this world. Just the rapture alone. It's going to bring about death. Fear. There's going to be mass chaos. People are in a sense, going to go into that survivalist mode. It's really, I guess, what the preppers have been waiting for. They're waiting for this time, aren't they? And that day will come. This survivalist mentality that will probably be taking place. The Antichrist will then be revealed with all of this unrest. He's going to come into this world of chaos at a time really that is primed for him to arrive. This world is going to be looking for answers. They're going to be looking for hope. But this Antichrist that comes on the scene on this white horse, how does he come? As a false messiah. He comes bringing really false hope. He comes bringing deception to this world. He's going to do it with all deceitfulness and lying wonders. And there's going to be many in this world that are going to buy into it. Buy into the lie. The first six seals will have already been broken and its judgments have already been sent out. During... This first three and a half years, we're told in Matthew's gospel that we already looked at that nation is going to rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We know that it's during this first three and a half years, I believe, that the invasion of Gog and Magog and these other Muslim nations are going to come down upon the nation of Israel. It's going to be a big event. The Antichrist is also going to enter in during this time into the land of Israel, and he's really going to set up base camp there in Israel. He's going to bring along with him these other ten-nation confederacies, uh, the nations, uh, uh, this revived Roman Empire that is going to be headed by the Antichrist, probably coming up against Russia and these other nations that are coming up against Israel at the time. But as he sets up his headquarters there in the land of Israel, we know that there's going to come a point at which the Antichrist is going to tell the Jews, you can no longer worship the way you've been worshiping in your temple. Now I demand that you worship me as God. The Jews are going to realize they've been deceived. And we're told that they're they're told to flee. They're going to flee to Petra. They're going to flee out into the wilderness where God is going to protect them for three and a half years. Divine protection upon them. You know, that's just the first three and a half years. We haven't even got into the second half, which is called the Great Tribulation, where we're going to see the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments that are going to be poured out upon this world. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24, that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. We've already looked at Matthew 24, which I believe spans this seven year tribulation period. I have a, a chart up there just as a reminder to you of the, of the periods that we are covering and have covered so far. The church age, the beginning of sorrows. And you can see Ezekiel 38 and 39 there, Matthew chapter 24, in this first three and a half years, going in now into the great tribulation, the second half of the tribulation period. But we read in Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus told his disciples, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war, see that you are not troubled, for all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places." In Matthew 24, verse 8, it says that at the ending of this period referred to as the birth pains, we read in verse 8 that all these are the beginning of sorrows. This first half, this is just the beginning of sorrows that's going to come upon this world. Matthew 24, 14 says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached... And all of the world is a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Remember that Matthew 24 spans this seven year period of time. And there's going to come a time where there are going to be millions of people that are going to be saved. God is going to pour out his grace really even during this tribulation period. Even though it's a time of his wrath. There's going to be many that are going to experience his mercy during this time and his grace. Remember a few weeks ago in Ezekiel, we saw that God's purposes will be seen in all of his judgments for both Jews and Gentiles. We saw in chapter 39 the words, Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Verse 6 said, Magog and those who live in security in the coastlands, they shall know that I am the Lord. In verse 7, we read, The nations shall know that I am the Lord. In verse 22, The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. God is using these judgments, this wrath that is being poured out really to judge the world in their rejection of him but it is also to get their attention because he wants to save more that leads us to chapter 7 this morning where there appears to be when we get to chapter 7 a pause it's kind of like hitting the pause button in chapter 7 But chapter 7 really falls still in the progression of these seal judgments. Remember that six of these seals have already been loosed. And we still have another judgment that is still to come. Chapter 7, though, moves from judgments in chapter 6, if we could say, to people. It moves from judgment to people. Now the focus is upon that there will be millions of people that will get saved. That's God's desire for both Jew and Gentile. It may be that this pause that we see here in chapter 7 is to answer the obvious question... Of chapter 6, verse 17. For the great day of his wrath has come. Who will be able to stand? It's asking a question. Who's going to be able to stand? With all that's transpired so far, will there be anyone that's going to survive? That's a terrifying question. Well, that question gets answered... In verse 9 of chapter 7, look at it. I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number was standing before the throne and before the Lamb. In other words, there's going to be millions who who's going, who are going to survive these judgments. A multitude which no one could number. Keep in mind... The chapter seven really is still, though, in the flow of these seal judgments. Uh, chapter seven is really that pause before chapter eight, verse one. In chapter eight, verse one, it's when the it's going to be when that seventh seal is loosed. And that is going to bring in now the next set of judgments called the trumpet judgments. As soon as that angel sounds, the seven trumpet judgments begin. I believe that that is going to be at the midpoint of the tribulation period. Some have thought that chapter 7 is a parenthetical insert. It's kind of like when you put something in parentheses. And what it's saying is that this chapter 7 is injecting some more information and some more clarity to what is taking place during this period of time. I almost look at it like it's a time of God injecting a little bit of hope after we've just seen these seal judgments loosed upon this earth. We could divide chapter 7 this way. Look at your Bibles. Verse 1 says, after these things. Do you see how it starts there? After these things. After what things? I believe the things that are being spoken of is probably after the six seals that have already been broken. God is going to put a seal a protection upon his servants to protect them during this judgment time that is still to come. That's going to be that 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Then look at verse 9. We see the same words again. After these things. After what things? I believe that this is the sealing of the servants. The 144,000. So we could really divide chapter 7 really into two halves. And and so we have, after verse 9, we have this innumerable number of people who are going to be saved during the tribulation period. Now let's look at at verse 1 more closely. After these things, John says, I saw four angels, and I believe these angels are angelic beings. I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. It's from these words, after these things, also translated maybe in some of your Bibles, after this, that chapter 7 appears, I believe, to still be in a chronological flow of these seals. Chapter 6, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal... It says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the testimony for which they held. I believe that this particular group of people is probably different than what we're seeing in chapter 7, verse 9. These are martyrs. They're under the altar of God. That is the picture that John is seeing. In chapter 7, verse 9, We read, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. And it says, These are of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And this, to me, appears to be another group of people that John has seen. This is the multitudes. And then we also have the martyrs in chapter 6. As I shared in chapter 7, chapter 7 starts as if God momentarily hits this pause button. And, you know, when I think of that uh, pause button hitting, I think of, you know what? Thank you, Lord. Because, you know what? I have family members. I know you have family members that don't know Christ. It could be that some of our family members... Uh, we're we're going to rejoice for that pause button. We're going to rejoice that those 144,000 are going to be sealed by God to be evangelists on this earth. And that maybe even some of our loved ones are going to get saved during this tribulation period. After these things, John says in verse 1, I saw four angelic beings standing on the four corners of the earth. John also sees these angels standing, uh, holding back the wind. Holding back the wind, really, I believe, of judgment. Now, these four corners of the earth, I believe, are speaking of that these judgments that are coming upon the whole earth the north, the south, the east, and the west, that they are affecting the whole earth globally. This is not just an isolated judgment that's coming down in in Israel or in in the Middle East there, but I believe these judgments the whole world is going to experience in a global way. We see in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. And so I believe that terminology is speaking of the whole world as a whole. So here we have these four angels momentarily under this pause holding back the four winds of the earth. Now, what is the wind? Well, I believe the wind is speaking of judgments. In scripture, we see it numerous times wind is used in the way of evil or in the way of judgment. We know that uh, the pharaoh saw in his dream the seven years of famine which were brought on by the east wind. And there's numerous places that I that I found in scripture that refer to the wind in reference to them being judgment. He goes on to say that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, some have taken these three things and, and these called them symbols and said that, that the wind is speaking about Israel, the earth is speaking about the Gentiles, and the sea and the trees is speaking about the authority of men. I don't know that I agree with that, but I throw that out because you might, and sometime in reading you might see that. I really see them as being more literal. And the reason why is because when we get into chapter 8, when the trumpet judgments begin, we're going to see that these trumpet judgments are going to have a direct impact upon this literal earth and upon the sea and upon the tree and the green grass. And so I believe in context and flowing with that, that I believe that what we're talking about here is literally these judgments are being held back really these four angels are being momentarily held back from executing this judgment just for a period of time. We might call chapter 7 the calm before the storm. And I think that's probably a good way to see it. When we get into chapter 8, the first of the trumpet judgments is uh, we're going to see that these angels are going to let the winds of judgment begin to flow again. They're going to sound their trumpet. And the the judgments are going to begin once again. We read in chapter 8, verse 7, that that hail and fire are going to follow the sounding of this trumpet. It's going to be mingled with blood and they were thrown to the earth. But chapter 7, verse 1, reads that the winds should not blow on the earth. We also see that the third of the trees... In chapter 8, and all the green grass are going to be burned up. But chapter 7, verse 1, reads that the wind should not blow on any tree. The second trumpet is blown in verse, in, in, uh, verse 8. And it says that the third of the sea become blood. This is in chapter 8. A third of the living creatures in the sea die, and a third of the ships are destroyed. But in one, we read that the wind should not blow on the sea. I believe that this is a holding back of these judgments momentarily. Look at verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east. Or it literally reads from the rising of the sun. And so here's John seeing this other angel coming up from the rising of the sun or from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Then as John is seeing these four angels holding back these winds of judgment, Another one of God's angels intervenes, comes in to the scene. And this angel has the seal of the living God. Now, this is not the seal itself. This is the instrument by which you seal something with. You've all seen that where you take that seal and you make that impression in that wax. Here's this angel that has the seal of the living God. He's going to use that seal to seal these 144,000. What we don't know as we read this is what exactly is on that seal. Remember that seals always had either the king's impression. It showed who made that seal. We don't know what this says, but we get a little bit of insight into this. If we look at Revelation chapter 14... We see another time where these 144,000 are mentioned. Uh, and they're mentioned in a different locale. Now, they're actually uh, standing there with Jesus the Lamb on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is that Temple Mount area, where that gold dome is, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Here's these 144,000, we're told standing there with Jesus the Lamb on Mount Zion. 14.1 reads, Then I looked, and behold, a Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. That gives us a little bit of an insight of what is there. Is it visible? We don't know that. Uh, we don't know if who's a, but who it will be visible to is that we know that Satan, we know that demons, we know that anyone that would want to harm these hundred and forty-four thousand will be able to see it. They're going to be sealed by God so that no one would harm them during this period. Verse three says, "Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed." the servants of our God, on their forehead. That's why this pause button's there. God then seals these 144,000. This isn't the first time that we see sealing in Scripture. There's actually numerous places where people have been sealed by God. Actually, in over 600 years before John got this prophecy... In Ezekiel chapter nine, we see that a vision was given to Ezekiel of the slaughter of Jerusalem's idolaters. This is how it reads: Now the glory of the God, now the glory of the God of Israel, had gone up from the cherubim, cherub, which it which it had been, so to the threshold. Of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the rider's inkhorn on his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and who cry over all the abominations that are done within it. And so really what he's being instructed to do, this man with the inkhorn is to go and make a mark upon those that are crying and, and crying out over the idolatry that's in Jerusalem. But then he goes on to say, but to the others, the others speaking of the idolaters... He said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom the mark and and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. That's a scary thought right there. He says, start with the leadership. Uh, You know, start with those. Look for those that are crying out because they hate the idolatry and put a mark on them. And those that are practicing idolatry, slay them. God uses his way of marking. We also see how God marked and commanded Moses to mark. The blood, told the children of Israel to put the blood on the doorpost. And the angel of death that we passed over would spare them. It was really a mark. Also, remember when God marked Cain, and he kept that so that anyone that sees that mark wouldn't kill Cain. What's also interesting, though, is that Satan himself, the master deceiver, and we're going to see this as we get further on into Revelation here. He is also going to issue a mark. You see, everything that the Lord, uh, that we see happening here, he comes and tries to do a substitute. So now it'll, it's going to be, well, unless you have the mark of the beast, unless those people during the tribulation period take that mark, they won't be able to buy or sell anything. And so he's going to have this control using this mark. Revelation 13:16 says that he causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Did you know that according to 2 Corinthians 122 and Ephesians 4:30 that if you're born again and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that he has sealed you? That you actually have the seal of God on you. You know what the seal is? The Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. You know what the Holy Spirit is? It's your guarantee that you're going to be going to heaven. God already has you marked out as his. And when God says you're his, no one can take you away from him. You're marked out by the living God. You're sealed. Look at verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed... 144,000 of the tri- of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. I believe that these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, we could call them, are going to be Jews that are going to get saved during the tribulation period. They're going to get saved and God is going to seal them and then use them To evangelize on this earth. That's mercy. That's God pouring out his mercy upon this world. He goes on and he lists these 144,000. He says in verse 5, Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Nephtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Ishkar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Benjamin. 12,000 were sealed. Uh, Let me say right off myself, I believe when I read this, this is literally 144,000 Jews from the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't spiritualize it. I don't make it. The Jehovah's Witnesses, don't believe them when they tell you The 144,000 is part of their organization. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, and you're of this 144,000, then you're ones that are going to spend eternity with Jehovah in heaven. If you're not one of the 144,000, then you're going to live on a, a, a paradise on earth, a remade earth. That's the doctrine of the Watchtower Society. Don't believe it. This 144,000 is literally going to be 144,000 Jews that God is going to save, that God is going to seal, and that God is going to use to evangelize this earth during this tribulation period. When we get to Revelation 21, verse 12, we're going to see that, though, that these names will be written, these 12 names of the tribes of Israel are going to be written on the gates of the new Jerusalem. We're going to see that there's going to be 12 gates there in this new city. There's going to be 12 angels, 12 tribes, 12 foundations, and 12 apostles that are going to be there. Some people have gotten in, well, how is God going to round up these 144,000 Jews? God knows who they are. And he knows what tribe they're from. That's not some big mystery to God. God knows who they are. In this list of the 12 tribes, uh, we do not see in Revelation chapter 7, we do not see the tribe of Dan. Dan. Now, again, this is one of those areas that there's a, a number of people that have speculated and come up with some different answers. Some uh, believe that it's just explained simply that it's an issue of symmetry, that, that in Scripture we always want to keep the 12. Uh, remember that uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's son, that they replaced. And some people say, well, there's really 13 tribes. But whenever you see them listed, one could be missing could be Levi wasn't given the the land. They were called to the priesthood. They're not listed in one section. So as you read through scripture, sometimes you're going to see one tribe replaced with another. But it's always in these 12s. But what we do know is that when it gets to the book uh, at the end of the uh, tribulation period during the millennial reign, that the tribe of Dan is going to be listed in that list when they are allotted land during the millennial reign of Christ. But here's one interpretation which to me seems to make sense. When the tribe of Dan, they migrated north uh, from their original location. Uh, You can see the map there of how the land was divided up amongst the tribes. The, you can see the area of Dan there. Well, they migrated up north of the Galilee there uh, to an area that is called Tel Dan today. Now, they went, when they went up there, uh, Dan, as he made his way up there, he came along and found, um, uh, took along another uh, Levite, Ephraim, that joined him on his way there. And what they did is they erected a, an altar and began to worship false gods, graven, graven images, golden calves that were there, the, the uh, worship of Baal. And I actually have, uh, I've shown that picture. I think that we have a picture of that, that place where they went. Maybe the next slide right there. That's the actual place right there. That little metal thing there, they only put that there so that you can kind of see what, a, what the altar would have looked like. You could see the four corners there. Those are the four horns that would have been on the altar that was there. The altar is no longer standing, but what was there in the side of that is where they did this idolatry and this worship. Well, Dan, then the tribe of Dan, he was, they were part of this idolatry. And that's, uh, that was an eerie feeling. I remember sitting there on that wall and and hearing a study about this when we were there in Israel. We read though in Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 21 that the Lord warned that if they turned away any of the tribes of Israel, if they turned away from the law to idolatry, that he would separate that tribe of Israel for adversity. That he would separate them out for adversity according to all the curses of the covenant, covenant that are written in the book of the law. So God warned Israel, don't turn in idolatry. Well, there are some that believe that Dan is removed in this list in Revelation there because of their idolatry. In other words, Dan may go through the tribulation period unprotected. By God, if that is the interpretation here. We don't know that for sure, but that, that is a possibility. It's the one that seems to make sense. Uh, now, John sees, as we come to verse 9, John sees those who get saved out of the Great Tribulation. The 144,000 have already been listed. And then it says, after these things, after what things? After the sealing of the 144,000 Jews, John says, I looked, in verse 9, and behold, a great multitude. And no one could number. I like that. That's, That's a big number. No one could number. That's a lot of people. They were of all nations, tribes, peoples, And tongues. And they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Could you imagine what that worship is going to be like? People that have gotten saved during the tribulation period. And now they're saved, and they're standing there with these white robes before God, cleansed, righteous before God, crying out salvation. We're already in heaven. We've already been raptured. We've already been taken to be with the Lord. That number no one could number, that that excites me. And I think it does you too because I know that all of us are praying. How many of you have given up on praying for some family members? Pr- given up on praying for some of your neighbors or co-workers because you've been praying so long and it seems like they won't turn. They won't come. You know what I want to encourage you? <laughs> Keep praying. Keep interceding for them. They're not praying for themselves. Keep interceding for them. Pray that God would bring people into their path. Pray for hard situations that would turn their eyes to God. God, do whatever it takes, but Lord, save them. Don't just fix all their problems. Save their soul. That should be our prayer. John sees this great multitude which no one could number. To me, that just, a, that just shows me how gracious and merciful our God is. He didn't just say, you know, the rapture is going to happen and then just judgment is coming down. I'm going to wipe them all out. No, I'm going to save multitudes of people. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to Repentance. That's the heart of our Lord. Keep praying, keep trusting in the Lord. Don't stop. It could be that some of these loved ones are going to get saved during this time. They might be crying out, Salvation has come. You know, God commissioned the disciples and He commissioned the church in Matthew 28. It's called the Great Commission. He commissioned us to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel. Each one of us that know Christ. But you know what? It doesn't tell us that God is going to accomplish the preaching of the gospel to every soul and person in this world through the church. It doesn't say that. It says that the everlasting gospel is going to go out to all the nations of the world. Then the end will come. But I believe that God has other means and other ways that he's going to accomplish that. In Revelation chapter 14 verse 6, John saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven and he was preaching the everlasting gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And listen to what the angel is shouting. This is what he's saying as he's preaching. Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This angel, I believe, appointed by God is going to go through the heavens preaching the gospel. You have the 144,000 evangelists out there preaching the gospel. And there are going to be through that millions that will be saved. I believe that really this period of time is going to be probably over this seven year period, probably the biggest evangelistic revival this world has ever seen. There's going to be probably in one period of time more people saved. Who knows how many? The number's innumerable. We don't even know how big of a multitude that is but it's going to be a big event. John sees this multitude standing before the throne. In the New Testament, this word in Greek for standing is the word resurrection. It means to, the word resurrection means to stand up. Here's these saints now standing before the throne, resurrected. He also sees them dressed with white robes, which speaks of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is going to be given to them. That righteousness has already been given to you and I. The day you accepted Christ, he gave his righteousness to you. You stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ right now. But they're going to be also given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. John also sees them with palm branches in their hands. And palm branches were always waved uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was really just, it was a time of rejoicing. It was, a t- it was a victory shout during that time of celebration. And here's these tribulation saints waving palm branches dressed in white robes. And now in verse 11, it says that in response to all this, we read that all the angels stood around the throne, that were standing around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, they all fell on their face before the throne and they worship God. (laughs) Can you imagine what that worship service is going to be like? We're going to be there at this time, seeing really this multitude of tribulation saints standing before the throne. We've already been in heaven. Listen to this worship service. Remember that if you're saved then you're going to be there at this worship service. If you don't like to worship now, (laughs) you better get used to it because when you get to heaven, as you go through the book, of we're going to see numerous times that we're going to be falling on our faces worshiping God. Sometimes we get all intimidated here. When you're in heaven, we're going to just hit the ground prostrate before God worshiping God for who he is and what he has done. We see that there's angels here that are worshiping. There's elders, which I believe if we take it in context of what we've already covered, that the elders, I believe the 24 elders is a reference to the church. The living creatures, these angelic beings are there, and the multitude of Revelation 9 are there standing before the throne worshipping God look what they say in verse 12 how they're worshipping they say amen blessing and glory and wisdom thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever amen if you take all of those words in verse 12 you see that it starts out with amen. You see that it ends with amen. And then what's in between those two amens? Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. That's worship. That's, that's saying, God, you have blessed us greatly. God, we give you all the glory. Your wisdom is unfathomable. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and what you have done, how you've saved us. We honor you for who you are. Your power is incredible. Your might. And you know, there's seven words there. Those seven words really... Can be a, a good thing for us to sit and ponder when we think about worshiping God. What is worship from my heart before the Lord? It's all of these seven things honoring God, lifting Him up for who He is, praising Him for what He's able to do, what He's doing in your life. You know, the number seven speaks of what? The seven churches member? Completeness. Here's this multitude worshiping before God. The first question of the Westminster Confession asks this question. What is the chief and highest end of man? There's the question. This is how they answered that question. To which the following answer is given. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God... And fully to enjoy him forever. We come here on Sunday. We should be pouring out our hearts before the Lord and worship for him. Just sitting here. on, you know, Sinners saved by the grace of God. Knowing where we're going. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We should be lifting up praises before God here on Sunday morning. Just pouring out our hearts before the Lord. We don't have to wait until we get... To heaven, to do it in this way, we can do it here and now. Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come? He's asking a question. Obviously, there's another group in heaven. And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. And have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He's basically saying these are the new arrivals that have come out of the great tribulation to be washed, to be made white by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know that that happens in your life every single day? that His blood continues to cover you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness every single day. That's worthy of our worship. Then we close really with three promises. Look at verse 15. This first promise is that there's going to be a special place For these tribulation saints, when they come out of the great tribulation, a special place that God has in that heavenly kingdom for them. It says in verse 15, Therefore, because they have been washed and made white, this great multitude stands before the throne of God, and it tells us that they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell with them. It literally is saying there that that he will live or camp in a tent with them. God is with them. But here's these tribulation saints serving him day and night in the temple. We know that for the church... For those of us that get raptured and, and taken to heaven, uh, there's other words that are given for the church age. Uh, we're told in scripture that we're going to uh, rule as rulers and judges over Israel, that we're going to be kings and priests. And so I'm not sure the order of how all this works. It could be that the tribulation saints, when they arrive, they may have a different role in heaven than the church age. No one's going to be sad. It's all going to be glorious. But there could be a different place for them. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest things? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? God has plans for us, people. The church. God is going to use us in heaven. Revelation 1.5 says that God... says uh, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. I don't know what that's like, to be reigning in the presence of the Lord as kings and priests, but that's what it says. The second promise for these tribulation saints is that they will also now be living under God's divine protection. And that's going to go on for eternity. Verse 16 says, They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. It makes me... How many of you know Kirk Franklin? <laughs> makes me think of his revelation song every time I read that. We just went to, uh, down to Myrtle Beach and saw Kirk Franklin at the House of Blues they had a Kirk Franklin uh, uh, breakfast there with their whole choir singing. It was pretty incredible. But whenever, anyway, whenever I read verse 16, neither shall they hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat anymore. In Revelation 6.6, we read that a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. There's going to be hunger that these tribulation saints are going to experience during the tribulation. But he says, you're not going to hunger anymore. In Revelation chapter 8 verse 10, it says, then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water the name of the star is wormwood a third of the waters became wormwood and many died from the water because it was made bitter you're not going to thirst any longer in revelation 16:8 then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the power and power was given to him to scorch men with fire there's not going to be any more heat no more fire no more experience God is going to put his divine now protection upon these saints the third promise is a wonderful provision verse 17 for the lamb Who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living water, fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He's gonna shepherd them, lead them, just like a shepherd leads his sheep. He's gonna wipe away every tear from their eyes. I can't wait for that day. No more pain. No more sorrow. No suffering. No more tears. Former things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what we have to look forward to, church. That day's coming. We're going to experience that. The former things have passed away. 2013 is about gone. We're looking ahead to another year. But think of eternity. Forever and ever and ever. In the presence of God. With no more curse. No more sin. No more temptations dealing with that day in. No more trials, no more money issues. God's provisions are all there. No more running to the hospital anymore. You know, all of these things are going to pass away. All things are going to become new. That either thrills you or scares you. To me, it thrills me. I look forward to that day. It shouldn't scare us. I think some of us just don't like the unknown. this heaven thing, what's it going to be like? I can tell you that it's going to be a place where you're going to just, you're going to be, we're going to blow our circuits. We don't know exactly. There's very little that tells us what heaven's going to be like. But what we do know, is enough. And it's enough to give us that hope and that encouragement to press on. That you would press on as a believer in these last days. Going into this next year, press on and press on even harder. Look for opportunities for the Lord to use you. Wouldn't it be great to stand before God someday And I don't think it'll look like this, but wouldn't it be great to be able to take the arm of somebody that you led to Christ and lead them to the throne of God, even if it's one? We should all be looking for those opportunities and taking advantage of the days that we're living in. God bless you guys. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.